0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast, fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. 75 years ago, on the 22nd of June 1948, HMT Empire Windrush landed at Tilbury Docks. It's rightly remembered as a landmark moment in the story of Caribbean people in Britain. But as Christina Fryer joined me to discuss, the Windrush didn't arrive from nowhere. In fact, it was preceded by a long and complicated relationship between Britain and the Caribbean, which is less well-remembered today. Christina has written a feature on this overlooked history for BBC History magazine, and I spoke to her to find out more. We're speaking on the 75th anniversary of HMT Empire Windrush landing at Tilbury Docks in 1948. So for anyone listening who isn't very familiar with the story of the Windrush, maybe our international listeners in particular, why was this such an important moment in British history that we're still talking about 75
2: years on? So, the arrival of the Empire Windrush, as you mentioned, 75 years ago, is significant because I see it as marking a kind of turning point when it comes to the history of Britain and the Caribbean. Because on board, and these weren't the only passengers, but on board the Windrush were nearly 500 Jamaicans who had come from Jamaica to Britain to basically set up a new life. Uh, And these were people who were, at the time, British subjects. A few months later, they they would be deemed. Uh, British citizens who were coming from the British colony of Jamaica. Many of them had actually served in World War Two. Some of them had been uh, had been in the uh, Royal Air Force. But for many of them, they were coming back to Britain to work, to live, and possibly to some. Some were planning to return to the Caribbean and others were planning to uh, have other other family members come. This has been traditionally understood as the beginning of a an extensive migration from the Caribbean and from other parts of the British Empire to Britain. But as I mentioned, I see this as a transition point because, of course, there had been people, quite significant numbers of people who had come to Britain from the Caribbean before 1948, including those RAF servicemen. But it, it, it does mark a quite significant upswing in migration that we see through the 1950s and the 1960s.
0: So as you mentioned, this is a key moment, but it doesn't come completely out of the blue. The Windrush didn't just arrive in Britain from nowhere. It was preceded by a long relationship between Britain and the Caribbean. And that's something that you've written about for BBC History magazine. And I wanted to focus on this episode. Can you tell us a bit about that relationship between Britain and
2: the Caribbean. Can you give us some context? So that is a relationship that that began much earlier. It actually begins in the 1500s. But the first colonies that England sets up in the Caribbean, the first colony happens to be uh, St. Christopher and then Barbados, those begin in the 1620s. And very quickly, it's not an immediate process, but it happens pretty quickly, those become plantation colonies. And in particular, most of these are colonies that were focused on sugar. And then the British imperialism and British colonialism in the Caribbean very quickly aligned itself with the transatlantic slave trade With slavery. So these became colonies that were growing commodity crops, in particular sugar, that was grown by enslaved people and enslaved Africans and their descendants for the purpose of enriching English and then British planters, but also the British nation. And that history of of slavery and sugar carries on through the 17th century and then into the 1700s or the 18th century, which is really the peak of the really worst aspects of slavery. But the story that I really focus on in the piece that I wrote for BBC History is focused on what happens after the end of slavery, because a lot of historians have focused on this on this slavery history. It's not as well-known in public discourse as you know I would like it to be, but there's been a lot of work on that. But there's been less discussion about those connections that remain between Britain and the Caribbean when slavery ends in the 1830s. And so that's what I wanted to write about uh, in this piece.
0: Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because abolition didn't just mean a clean end to slavery in the Caribbean, did it? It was a much more messy, slow transition. Can you tell us a bit about the period that followed abolition?
2: So I think the first thing to say, especially for uh, for British audiences, is that the abolition that I'm talking about is the abolition of slavery, which happens in 1834, and not the abolition of the slave trade, which happens in 1807. And I think there's a lot of conflation around these two moments in a lot of the British discourse that tends to emphasize 1807 as sort of the end of slavery. So there's often a lot of narratives about how Britain was one of the first to abolish slavery, but actually it is sort of in the middle of, you know, all of the countries, both in the Americas and, and, and uh, the European countries that abolished slavery, because that happened in the 1830s. The key thing to note is is that I think it's 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 quite useful to think of emancipation in the British context as a gradual process. And if we start in 1834 and the, the Parliament passed uh, the Act of Abolition in 1833, it took effect on August 1st, 1834. And there are two key provisions in that Act that are pretty important to keep in mind. The first was compensation, and that was compensation for people who owned enslaved people, not compensation for enslaved people themselves, uh, who did not receive any, any financial benefit from, from emancipation and or from this particular Act. And then the second key aspect that I think really emphasizes or really highlights that this was a gradual process was the creation of a transitional system known as Apprenticeship. And so this was put into effect again on August first, eighteen thirty four. It transitioned enslaved people into apprentices. That's how that's what they became known as legally. And the idea was that they needed to be transitioned into being ready for freedom. So there's this very slow process of the slow doling out of freedom. But part of why this is a slow doling out of freedom is because it actually provides additional years of free labor, labor that planters are not having to pay for for another four to six years. For certain laborers, it was supposed to be four years, and those were people who were generally not doing field labor, so they might have been working in towns or ports, and they were generally seen by the designers of apprenticeship as more ready for freedom, whatever that means, than agricultural laborers who were going to be apprenticed for six years. And the system of apprenticeship meant that apprentices had to stay working in their previous arrangements, so they were still working in plantations or still working in cities and towns for their previous owners. They had to work 40.5 hours a week without any pay. Any hours beyond that, they might have been paid for. They also, and this was one of the key principles of key aspects of apprenticeship, is that the state took over, took charge of punishment. So former owners, now people who had apprentices, were not allowed to punish apprentices themselves. Instead, the state would do it. And Britain sent a a whole class of new officials who were known as stipendiary magistrates who actually went around in circuits around each island or each colony, basically going to estates, showing up and and basically adjudicating between masters and apprentices, and then they were the ones who doled out punishments. And often those punishments were as harsh, if not even in, in some cases harsher, than those that had taken place during slavery. So, there was a narrative uh, that was published in uh, 1837 that was the, the narrative of an apprentice, a man by the name of James Williams, who in 1834 uh, was quite, a, you know, was a teenager. And some missionaries and, and abolitionists basically recorded his story and then published it back in Britain to, to sort of jumpstart another abolition campaign. And he reported that his treatment was significantly worse than it had been when he was enslaved. Now, I do want to caveat this by saying Saying that he had been actually quite young when he was enslaved, so there could be that you know his, his experience isn't necessarily one that every enslaved person had, but it is significant. And he also detailed the really gruesome treatment of women in this process. The, as, as I mentioned, that pamphlet was was used to kind of jumpstart another abolition campaign. That campaign was successful. An apprenticeship was ended two years early in. 1838, again, also on August 1st. And that is a moment that historians of this period and and, and people at the time referred to as full freedom. So for me, I don't really consider 1834 to be full freedom. It is an emancipation, but again, it's a gradual one. And then 1838 really marks this moment of full freedom. But as you were suggesting, that is still also not the end of the story because these were colonies that their whole purpose was to produce in particular sugar, at high volumes to sell around the world, to sell back to Britain, to make profit. Sugar is a very intensive crop to to grow. It it demands a lot. It also has to be produced pretty much on site because once you cut sugar cane, it rots within 24 hours. So it's a very complex, and these plantations were both farms and factories. The production had to begin on the estate itself, and those conditions did not change uh, when emancipation happened. And so There immediately emerged these clashes between planters and British officials and British onlookers who want these colonies to remain plantation colonies versus freed people who didn't really care about whether Britain is getting an enormous amount of profit from this but but did care very much about taking control over their own lives. And so what we see in the 1840s and 1850s across the Caribbean are various clashes over the conditions that freed people were working in, whether they were continuing to work on plantations, how much they were getting paid to do that work, and whether they were being paid what they believed was fair. Some of these conflicts depended on on what kind of land arrangements there were. So in islands, so there's some mainland British colonies, in particular uh, British Guiana. So in those colonies where there was more land, or where places in question were more mountainous, there were actually opportunities for freed people to escape the plantation, and so they might actually run off away from the plantation. And move into the hinterlands, move into the mountains, cr- create villages, and, and sort of set up their own lives away from the plantation economy. In places where that wasn't quite as possible, there were then other forms of, of protest that we see a little bit more often. Riots, work strikes, and other kinds of protest. And that, again, really carries into the 1840s and the 1850s across the region.
1: This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, Feeling a little bored? Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers.
0: And as we move into the later half of the 19th century, how did the nature of British rule or British influence in the Caribbean change?
2: So by the time we get into the 1860s, and in, in particular, I'll focus here on Jamaica in part because that's where my own research focuses, but also some of the conflicts there were, were the most severe. And they were the most severe because Jamaica had the most significant decline of the plantation economy. It was more severe than in some of the other parts of the Caribbean, in part because, as I mentioned, Jamaica is one of those places that is a little bit more mountainous. There were a few more options for people, and, and, and people were really taking full advantage of all the opportunities that that, that they could find what we see is that in places like Jamaica, there starts to be a sense that the plantation economy and the plantation estates are not going to recover. I I should also mention that there is a piece of legislation that Parliament passed in the 1840s called the Sugar Duties Act. And this is a little technical, but it it is actually quite important. In Britain in the 1840s, British economic thinkers we're really moving towards free trade. And what that meant was basically the removal of all import duties, tariffs, and, and so forth. And people who are very familiar with 19th century uh, British history will probably have heard of this in relation to Robert Peel and the Corn Laws. There is a version of this for the Caribbean as well, which is this Sugar Duties Act. And basically, before that act, which was passed in 1846, British Caribbean sugar had been protected, so it was cheaper to purchase in Britain than sugar produced in Brazil or in Cuba, which also still had thriving sugar industries and where slavery continued to thrive until the 1880s. In order to make British sugar cheaper, that that required heavier duties on these other products. And the 1846 Act changes this so that now British Caribbean sugar is competing equally with the sugar that is per- being produced much more cheaply and in higher quantities in Brazil and Cuba. And British Caribbean sugar cannot compete. And that affects Jamaica even harder than some of the other islands. So there's this sense that the Caribbean is no longer competing, is economically ruined, at the same time that there are these political struggles, because gradually, people who were formerly enslaved, or whose ancestors were formerly enslaved, but who had been free at the time of enslavement, are gradually getting political power. We're not talking large numbers, but gradually, people of African descent were starting to be able to participate in local politics and gradually we're beginning to participate in legislative politics. This causes quite a significant concern for those who do not believe the people of African descent should be political actors. And so in 1865, all of this kind of comes to a major head in Jamaica with something that is known as the Morant Bay Rebellion. And this happens in October of 1865. It's a large response by Black people in the parish of St. Thomas in the East, who are disgruntled that one of their fellow friends had been convicted for squatting on a plantation. They basically attack the courthouse. There's a big melee. They kill one of the officials there. And then uh, unrest really spreads in the parish. And it's quite confined to the parish, but spreads throughout the parish over the, over the next few weeks. And the governor of Jamaica at the time, a man named Edward Eyre, believes that this is going to spread across the island entirely. He uses the phrase that he's concerned that this is going to be a quote-unquote second Haiti. He responds to this rebellion or to this uprising quite harshly. There are a large number of executions, and one of the people that he executes included his political rival, who the evidence is not especially clear that this man was really involved in any of the planning. But he had a political rival, George William Gordon, who was a mixed-race legislator and businessman, heir quickly arranges a sham trial for Gordon because Eyre had called martial law or it put, put martial law into effect so he could effectively do what he wanted and then had him hung. And this has a large range of effects. First of all, Eyre is actually recalled back to Britain. It's seen as as actually this is too harsh a set of actions. And so he is recalled to England. There are some whispers or some, some plans among certain of the British uh, literati who hoped that he would be tried, but he is not tried for this. This is the end of his colonial career. The second major impact is has to do with governance and the changing relationship between Britain and these colonies in that the Jamaica legislature actually dissolves itself. So it believes that the current system is one that is allowing people of African descent too much power. And so they dissolve themselves at error suggestion and instead welcome direct rule from London. And this is a little complicated because some of the documents suggest that London sees what they call Crown Colony rule, this direct form of, of governance from London. They see this as a way to in some ways protect people of African descent, and, and Black people in the Caribbean. But by creating this direct rule, they're also removing the opportunity for any Black person to be able to participate, to, to basically to be able to be a legislature, because there is no more assembly. And over the next 10-15 uh, to 15 years, most of the Caribbean colonies, but not all, end up going under some form of Crown Colony rule so that by the time we get towards the end of the 19th century, there is fairly little self-governance. In fact, there's basically no self-governance of any of these colonies. There is fairly little participation by Black people in, particularly in national or or colonial level government. And it is this much more top-down form of rule that is designed by its designers to protect, but is not actually providing any kind of protection that freed people had asked for, that they wanted for, and and so on. Something I wanted to ask you about is culture.
0: Because, of course, under crown rule, British influence wasn't just political and military and economic. It was also cultural. What kind of messages were spread about Britain in particular in the Caribbean during that era?
2: Yeah, so this is another this is another really important aspect of what's happening here and it's it's one that I think really shapes what happens in 1948 and and the years that follow. Because the other form as you mentioned is this kind of soft kind of cultural power and it takes the form of trying to teach people across the Caribbean and across all classes to really desire to be as British as possible. And so that takes the form of education for children, and so kind of British curriculum, emphasis on, you know, British writers, British history. So a lot of the history that's being taught is a British history and not the history of the place that they are in. And it also takes the form of spreading certain cultural practices, in particular sports is the really classic one. So this is why uh, cricket is uh, is such an important sport in the Caribbean, but also is such an important sport elsewhere. This is not just a process that was happening in the Caribbean. This process of cultural imperialism is the word we could use for it, is happening not just in the Caribbean, but across the, the British Empire. And then in particular, as Queen Victoria reaches the final decades of her reign, and as there is this sense that is growing in Britain as well of her as a kind of maternal figure, that sense of her as a maternal figure is also people in the Caribbean are also encouraged to see her in that way too. There is an increase of royal celebrations. You know, this is not a moment when Queen Victoria, Queen Victoria is not traveling to to the Caribbean, so this is an absent relationship or a distant relationship. But they are encouraged to sort of petition her as as British subjects. So so they often address their their even their political concerns to her as this kind of maternal figure who will protect them. But there's also these other kinds of imperial celebrations. You know, we're talking charity kinds of gatherings where people might raise money and donations uh, at certain kinds of celebrations. By the time we get into the 1920s, Empire Day is becoming an important celebration in the Caribbean. Again, this is happening, you know, you see this in Canada as well. There's this emphasis on having all all of these people in the Caribbean understand themselves as British... Not that that claim was necessarily recognized in Britain, but they are encouraged to see themselves as British because that's actually part of the glue that is going to keep these colonies as part of the British Empire and not trying to break away. They're trying to use all of these means and methods to keep these colonies British Preferably methods that don't require a lot of money. So sending missionaries who are being paid by their, you know, by their church denomination to do all of this training that takes less money than having to send lots and lots of military troops. So the cultural imperial approach is also one that that they that they were hoping that the British were hoping would keep the connection in a way that didn't require as much money to to be spent.
0: And so, when did people from the Caribbean start arriving? in Britain. And what was motivating them to go? Was it was it a pull factor that they'd been taught, as you say, that Britain was this incredible place? Or was it a push factor that the situation in the Caribbean had been
2: left economically ruined? So we actually start seeing people going from the Caribbean to Britain actually quite early, even as early as the 1700s. And I think, you know, there are a few people, you know, earlier as well. But in terms of this moment that we're talking about with the 19th century, we see people like Mary Seacole, for example, and I should say Mary Seacole was not born enslaved. She was, she was mixed race, and there were a class of people in the early 1800s uh, who were known as free people of color in the Caribbean who were of African descent but were, were born free and could be businessmen. They were often concentrated in cities, so she was born in, in, in Kingston. And it's a number of things. You know, Mary Seacole was particularly unique in that she, as she writes about in her autobiography, She was particularly interested in travel. So she's traveling, you know, so she wanted to go to to London. She went several times. She was also traveling around Central America. So she's a particularly unique figure. And I think she really illustrates the pull factor. She talks in her autobiography about how she saw these ships sailing away from Jamaica and going to London, and she always wanted to go. And she sort of talks about it as kind of the mother country, which is, again, that kind of cultural imperial narrative that people are being encouraged to see. Britain as. That's one dynamic. But the other dynamic for people who, you know, were not coming from as, as comfortable a background as, as Mary Seacole had been, certainly as a, as, as a younger person, one of the push factors is that many of the Caribbean islands in particular, as we get past uh, the 1860s, the economic situation in them is really poor, there are really high rates of unemployment. And so people start moving around trying to find work. And they go to any number of places. We see a lot of people going to Central America, particularly to do mining work, but also to work on the Panama Canal. People are heading off to Costa Rica, Panama, and other places. There are some people who end up going to Cuba to work a- as well. So there's a lot of movement around the Caribbean and, and, and the Caribbean Basin. And then people are moving to London for, for similar reasons. Now, obviously, that's a their trip. There are some people might be moving for school or they might, you know, some people would go temporarily and then intend to return. We see people like Henry Sylvester Williams, who was Trinidadian, who went to Britain in the late 19th century. I believe he studied for a few years and then ended up organizing this sort of first big Pan-African conference. It is a combination of both. And I think that one of the key things to keep in mind here that when we're talking about migration, when we're talking about people moving to Britain, this is before we have the kind of heavy visa regimes that we have at the moment. So travel, although the physical act of travel was more difficult than it is now, the act of border crossing was was often much easier. And people had the right. They were British. They were British subjects. They were British subjects in the same way that anybody in Britain was. And so they had the right to be in Britain, and many of them took that opportunity.
0: So as you say, these people were British subjects, but when they arrived in Britain, did people in Britain feel the same? What kind of reception did they get?
2: this changes over time i think so what we know particularly in the early 20th century is that there's not that much of a sense of and this is what will distinguish it from from 1948 there isn't an enormous sense that there's like a wave of people that are going to be coming from the caribbean so the kind of language that we see emerging in 1948 in, in 1948 but also in the 1950s around concern around immigration we don't see quite as much of that earlier what we do see though is a lot of concern about quote unquote transients uh, in particular places like cardiff or liverpool these are big port towns that had larger populations of people actually from all over the world but also including the caribbean of sailors uh, who were kind of coming in and out, and so there are all these kind of concerns or, or you know, this kind of panic language around uh, around transience and foreignness. Um, so that is one dynamic that we see, and that actually comes to a head in, in, in 1919 where we see actually a range of riots in both Cardiff and Liverpool in which we see white people in these areas really attacking or trying to attack the sailors of color who are living uh, in certain areas of town. There's also another narrative that emerges around the women uh, that many of these men had children with, and these were, of course, uh, white women. And so again, there are like all of these pretty unpleasant and racist narratives about these women and the kind of threat that they supposedly pose to, to the nation. When we move, though, into 1948 and, and, and the 1950s, and again, um, although that is not the beginning of these sort of waves of, of, of newcomers, there is a sense that this marks something different, and, we, and the language starts to reflect that. You start to see a lot of concern about how many people are coming. You start to see a lot of questions about are they staying? And you know, basically, how long are they going to be here? And one of the key things to know is that, although 1948 marks this particular moment... A lot of the, the majority of the people coming from the Caribbean actually do so in the 1950s because there is a, there's a piece of legislation passed in the U.S. Congress, the McCarran-Walter Act, that actually closed down immigration from the Caribbean to the United States. So while many people were drawn to Britain because of those, those long-standing ties or they had been in Britain before during World War II, a lot of people had actually just been trying to go to the United States, which was closer. And that path is, that path is closed. And so uh, we start to see more and more people trying to come to to London. I think one of the difficult things about this period was that, you know, because that, that sort of cultural imperialism had worked for a lot of people. And, you know, there were certainly critiques of it and criticisms of it. But a lot of people had they were British. That was their passport. By the time we get to 1948, there's the British Nationality Act. So everybody, both in Britain and in the colonies, are now citizens, British citizens. And so they arrive here to this place that they are told they belong and legally they belong. And that is not socially, they are being told that they do not belong. So we see a lot of discrimination, in particular in in employment discrimination. So a lot of people who are not willing to hire Black people from the Caribbean. We see this in housing discrimination. So people who are very hesitant to let rooms to people from the Caribbean or we're very eager to but were eager to basically cram people in into very cramped and small ac- accommodation so kind of a sort of a slumlord kind of kind of dynamics and so you see either of, of those two not desirable situations and then we see the rise of very significant violence in in the 1950s um in particular the the Notting Hill riots and again these are riots where white british people are are attacking black people that they see on the street these happen in this happened in Notting Hill this happened in Nottingham and in some instances there were even sort of bands of what were known as Teddy Boys actually hunting for black people? So mm-hmm. people were having to stay in their homes, basically just to stay safe. Um, and there were some, uh, unfortunately, there were some murders as as well. So it's it is really kind of a a, a grim situation that many of these people arrived in. Nonetheless, we do see a lot of Caribbean culture, and and I don't want to say necessarily a new form of Caribbean culture, but there are ways that a kind of pan-Caribbean culture is starting to form, a kind of solidarity is starting to form. We see this with the Notting Hill Carnival, which was created by Claudia Jones, and and it's kind of an immediate response to the Notting Hill riots. She was drawing on a Trinidadian practice of of carnival. We also see this in, again, because I always like to return to sports, uh, we see this in the way that Caribbean people hear Really banded behind the West Indies cricket team, known as the Windies, um, and that carries through the, the 60s, 70s, and and beyond. So there are some really grim moments, but I certainly don't want us, us to leave on those on those moments because the the culture that the Windrush generation brought to Britain, I think, is also uh, really worth celebrating.
0: Absolutely. I think you've really illustrated in this conversation that the Windrush is just one moment in a much longer and more complex history. Do you think that focusing on the Windrush anniversary can perhaps overshadow this longer history or simplify it? Or do you think it's
2: useful to have a key moment that events
0: and celebrations can rally around?
2: I think there are some dangers but ultimately, I think this is an opportunity. I mean, I think we, we just can't pretend that this didn't happen, you know, 75 years ago. It's a really important moment. There are people who, who came to this country, you know, at that time who are who are still alive. There are, you know, also, you know, many more people whose ancestors came to Britain during this time period. Um, although I'm American, my mother came to Britain uh, during this time period. She came in the 1950s um, and then ended up in the, in, in the U.S. Uh, at, at a later point. I, I think historians, and I, I am as guilty of this as, as anybody else in our our haste to always look for continuities and to be sort of cautious about, like, these new signal moments, we can be a little too hasty to do that and to ignore, like, actually, this is a really big deal and it should be celebrated and is important. I, I think the danger could be that we see this as a starting point rather than part of a longer history. However, I think also, though, that longer history is being sidelined regardless. So the history that I talked about, especially this, you know, 19th century moment, there are historians working on that, there are fewer historians working on it than, than on earlier periods, but there are historians working on it. But it's not talked about that much in, in terms of public discourse. And I think we can use this moment as one to really talk about this larger history. Like, there's an opportunity in this moment, both to celebrate the moment for what it is, but also to flag up this much longer history. And that is in part what I hope to do with this With this piece was, this is a moment we're celebrating, uh, and let's actually use that to, to, to think a little bit more broadly about why was it that these people um, came as British people, as British subjects, and s- subsequently as British citizens? What made that possible, and how can we think about the Windrush in that broader context?
0: That was Christina Fryer, speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorne. You can read Christina's feature on this subject on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.